Welcome to the Realized Gains Podcast, a guide to real estate investing. Join our co-hosts, Jordan Lee and Stephen Tran, as we interview a diverse group of real estate investors, both amateur and professional. Our goal is to help you understand that anyone can invest in real estate. Tune in to hear creative strategies and learn from both our mistakes and our successes. You can find us where you love to listen to podcasts, on YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com. Yeah, I, I worked my way up from you know washing cars on my dad's lot to ultimately running his business. And at one point I was a used car manager and I was responsible for managing the entire used car inventory. And you've probably heard of Kelly Blue Book. And they decided somewhere along the way that they were gonna come up with a new valuation every Friday. And so we would go out and we'd buy cars at the auction. And before I could get them back to the lot and cleaned up to put out for sale, the values were already dropping. Uh, when, you know, when I first got into real estate, I asked my mentor, I said, you know, if you had a hundred apartment units, how many of those people would pay you rent every month? You know? And he says, Oh, you know, you'd probably have about 95 of those units rented and almost all of them will pay their rent. Otherwise they get evicted. Right. And I thought to myself, like in my mind, that was like having a hundred cars on the lot and every month I sold 95 of them. Selling all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I'm in like, (laughs) this is it. I'm never going back to the car business. Hey guys, welcome to episode 49 of the Realized Gains podcast. I'm Stephen Tran. I'm a multifamily and short-term rental investor, and I'm also an agent in Oregon and Washington. And I'm your co-host, Jordan Lee, mortgage loan officer, licensed in about 10 states, and uh, I'm based here in Portland, and I invest in single-family homes. And Jordan, I know we had a super exciting episode. Who did we interview for episode 49? Yeah, we had Gabe Johansson on the on the on the show earlier, and it was like it was super interesting episode. So he he went through a lot of stuff. He he went from the car world to getting into real estate, and I think he can talk. He talks a lot about creative financing, and I mean, he go, somehow he went with seller financing and got up to a thousand units, which I think is crazy and like just lots of little nuggets about his thoughts on the economy why real estate's one of the best vehicles ever mm-hmm. for growing and wealth talks a lot about partnering and and like investing in multifamily. so if you're if you're interested in creative financing uh partnering and just acquiring a lot of units i think this is a good episode for you hey guys welcome to episode 49 of the realized gains podcast i'm stephen tran and i'm your co-host jordan lee and we're super excited to have gabe johansson on the show uh, he's with SMI Realty based in Salem. Uh, Gabe, do you want to just give us a quick like intro into your background and, and sort of your journey into real estate and, and how you got interested in investing? Sure, you bet. Um, well, my background is actually in the car business. Oh, my, yeah. My... That, I remember you talking <laughs> about that. That's right. Yeah. My, uh, my dad was a car dealer. Um, we moved to Oregon in 1989. Mm-hmm. He bought the Nissan dealership in Salem, and I spent 20 years of my life learning 
you know, the hard way, sales and marketing uh-huh. and uh, deal psychology and all of those fun things. And towards the end of that, you know, he decided he wanted to sell and I wanted to do something different. And so I had a friend who uh, at the time owned SMI and he invited me in to teach me real estate. And uh, so he brought me in and we connected our desk together. And his his rule for me, his only rule was he wasn't going to teach me real estate unless I became an investor. So oh, really? I was not smart enough on my own to come up with the idea like you gentlemen are. Um, I just wanted out of the car business and somebody pulled me into real estate. I thought it, it sounded like it might be fun. And, uh, and I actually told him I would rather skip the brokerage part and just invest. That sounded really interesting to me. And so um, we spent a few years together and uh, I, I was brokering deals and um, then we started buying some deals together okay. and uh, I got hooked. I mean, it, it took me it took me a few years of being in real estate before I, I think, recognized really the power mm. of, of becoming an investor and how it can change your life for the better. And uh, once once I could see the light. Um, yeah, I, I was all in and now I just now I just live, breathe real estate all the time. I mean, what was that? flip over moment for you? I mean, you probably had a couple properties at this point? Or? Well, yeah. So my first deal, it took, um, you know, I, I know we're talking to an audience that wants to get into real estate. And we talked before the show a little bit about how hard that is to, to make that leap. The first deal is really the hardest one to do. And it took me three years to find the perfect first deal to do. And, but, and so, but did you own a primary before? Like you owned your home while yeah. you were working in the car world? Sure, yeah. I bought. I actually bought my first house when I was 19 years old. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. So, And who encouraged you to do that? Um, I, I think I just did it naturally. Okay. I think, I think it was just, I just knew that I was supposed to buy a house. So, so you weren't like, you weren't in college or anything. You were just like- I, I was in college. Oh, you, were, you bought a home while <laughs> yeah. you were in college. Oh boy, you guys- we don't have time for this on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I got I got married in between my junior and senior year of high school. Oh, wow. And while I was in college, we had our second child. So I was 19 with two kids and married. Okay. And so I was at a so different it, stage of life. That stage of life, it was it like, was okay, time to buy a house. To house. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that might make more sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I wa- Yeah, I wasn't just uh, partying with my friends and went out and decided <laughs> it was time to get my first house. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I, I had owned real estate before in the past. And as a matter of fact, um, it's funny that we bring that up because I, I still remember my first house. Um, I think I paid 124000 for it, mm. brand new, 1,500 square foot, three bedroom, two bath in Kaiser. Bought it from the builder. Uh, bought it from the builder. Uh-huh. Um, actually used my, I, I had a grant to go to school, and so I used my tuition money as a down payment to buy it. Yeah. Uh, bought it on my own credit. It was it was nice. smarter to buy the house than it was to go to school. I think, um, but uh, but yeah, ended up my you know when you get married that young, oftentimes relationships don't work. We ended up sadly divorced, and uh, and you know at a time where divorce could have really taken me down, the equity in that house is what held everything that, together. That saved you, huh? And, and I and that house went up in value quite a bit, and we were able to sell that and and have the equity from that to do. And I bought another one and. Uh, and on and on. And so, yeah, I've been, I've been a homeowner pretty much. So, my whole, so you had kind life. of seen some of the value in real estate while you were working in, in the auto world. Cause you had bought and sold a couple of homes yeah, and seen and, the equity go up. Well, you know, time. interestingly in the car business, you, know, you sit and, and look at people's credit reports all day long right. and what their income levels are. And so you get to see that over and over and over. And of course, every car lot I'm sure is different. If you're selling Lamborghinis, you have, you know, rich people coming in every day. I was selling Nissan. So I just had blue collar people, state workers, and people coming in all the time and 
check in their credit. And it was interesting to see, uh, you know, how, how much more money people in real estate made than the people just doing normal jobs. And so I was intrigued, uh, mm. while I was, while I was in the car business, I was certainly intrigued by real estate. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I guess it's like, you're still selling a, I mean, a higher end <clears throat> price product that you don't buy as regularly, but there's a difference in how fast you want to sell a car versus homes over time, they gain value, right? Yeah, that, that's an interesting thought. So, um, yeah, I, I worked my way up from, you know, washing cars on my dad's lot to ultimately running his business. And at one point I was a used car manager and I was responsible for managing the entire used car inventory. And you've probably heard of Kelly Blue Book. Yep. You know, Kelly Blue Book, back in the day, we'd get a book every month in the mail and we'd go through it kind of like a baseball card guide to decide what a car was worth. Right. And then internet and everything that came out with software. And they decided somewhere along the way that they were gonna come up with a new valuation every Friday. And so we would go out and we'd buy cars at the auction. And before I could get them back to the lot and cleaned up to put out for sale, the values were already dropping. So (laughs) you'd buy a car and you thought you made a really good buy. And by the time it hits the the lot on the weekend, you go, oh, man, like, you know, the value already dropped. So uh, when, you know, when I first got into real estate, I asked my mentor, I said, you know, if you had 100 apartment units, how many of those people would pay you rent every month? You know, and he says, oh, you know, you'd probably have about 95 of those units rented and Mm. almost all of them will pay their rent. Otherwise they get evicted. Right. And I thought to myself, like, in my mind, that was like having 100 cars on the lot. And every month I sold 95 of them. Selling all of them, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like... I'm in. Like, <laughs> this is it. I'm never going back to the car business. So, um, so yeah, I relate everything from cars o- over into real estate. But the the values, you know, uh, uh, they say a car is a depreciating asset, but it doesn't generate cash flow. So it's not really an asset. I mean, it's just uh, you know something you need, and um, and they go down in value. And so to manage an inventory when you're trying to sell, you're right. Like a a, a car, you know, you put it on your lot, and you've got to get rid of it in a month or two, or else you got to start dropping the price. I mean, it's really, uh, you know, there's, there, it's a really time sensitive game mm-hmm. that you play in a real estate. It's fun because, you know, you go buy a building and you just wait a little while and then you, you know, you go, wow, it's worth more. <laughs> if they had Kelly Blue Book for, yeah. for buildings, you'd, <laughs> I would be happy for that report to come out every week. I'd love to read that on my portfolio. I mean, I think there's tech that sends out like, well, valuations, I don't, they're not perfect appraisal values, but they're pretty close. Like an algorithm, you know, yeah, like algorithm a Zillow based. type thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm happy to see those numbers every, well, I used to be happy to see those numbers until this yeah, year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Well, they, you only lose the money if you sell, right? I mean. Yeah, exactly. So, well, most of my properties are out. And I'm okay. So you, it took, it took three years and what, what in that meantime you were learning how to like broker deals, just doing normal realtor type stuff. What, what was the hesitation? Um, Cause I know you'd, you'd, you'd had the, opportunity, the experience to kind of buy and sell real estate already and seen the, the value. What, what was that hesitation over that three years? So I, I should um, give a little bit of backstory to my brokerage. I got in to be an apartment broker. And so oh, I sold okay. so from, you were more from day the, one, okay. I sold multifamily. Yeah. I'd, I've never sold a house before. So um, I've sold a neighborhood with 43 houses in it before, but I've never right. sold a house. Right. So I got in to be in a multifamily broker and to be an investor. And so just learning how to underwrite a deal, learning what a deal was. And my, you know, my mentor was very, very conservative and still mm. is to this day. 
And, uh, you know, he would always tell me that you can't stub your toe on your first deal. Mm. And so this is what makes it so hard to get in. And, and ultimately what ended up happening was we found, uh, we took a run at a few buildings, but we found a, um, a duplex in Albany that was a former meth lab. Mm. Uh, it had been certified to, to be habitable, but people had moved in and just completely trashed the place. The roof was caving in. There was literally like a hole in the, in the ceiling. Like it was raining <laughs> on the inside of the building. Um, this place was bad. Like it needed a lot of work. We bought it for uh, $100,000. And um, I actually borrowed the money from a friend. And instead of doing like a hard money deal, right. um, we I borrowed $125,000 from a friend at 10% interest. No points. Nice friend. Um, and uh, he was happy to do it. Yeah. And we put him in first position. And uh, we spent about a year. We cleaned that place up in three or four months, got it rented up, it cash flowed, and then we refinanced it. And then about, a, you know, I think we had it about two years, maybe two and a half years, and we sold that and rolled it into an 11-unit complex. And so um, by that time, you know, I mean, it, once I got the first deal under my belt, it wasn't so scary anymore. Mm -hmm. And to be able to do a deal that was pretty much – like there's no way you can lose no matter what, and right. if you did, it's a hundred grand type of a deal. Right. I think that was a good way to do it because it was it showed me even in doing that deal. I'll be honest, in the first three or four months, I can remember we actually ended up having to put about forty thousand dollars in. So we had over borrowed by twenty five thousand to do the rehab, mm -hmm. but now we needed another fifteen thousand, and I I was fifty fifty owner. And, uh, and so I had to write a check for $7,500. And the day that I wrote that $7,500 check, I remember thinking like, this sucks. <laughs> why, why do I want to be a real estate investor? You know, I didn't get it. It, it right. was at that time, you know, it just felt like, you know, I bought this thing and looked for it for three years and I finally bought it. Now I'm over there working on it and we've got to buy a new roof for it. And I'm painting it and doing all this, all this sweat equity and everything. And, uh, you know, it wasn't quite cash flowing or anything. And then, you know, I wouldn't even have tenants at that point. And I'm putting money into this thing and, and writing that check. Um, you know, that was, that was a big check for me at the time. And I just thought, man, I'm not sure if this is for me, you know, this, this isn't very fun. And, uh, you know, we got it, we got it rented up and things started cash flowing. And once I got a check coming back to me, even though it was probably only a few hundred dollars, I was like, Oh yeah. I, I love this. Now I know I'm a real estate investor. I mean, when you were describing the property, I was like, there's no way this went smoothly on your first deal, you know, with the roof and everything else. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it was, I mean, the rehab took a few months, you know, at least a couple months, I think longer than what we had expected it to. And it cost a little more and everything, but in the, in the end it worked. And, you know, from there bought a triplex and a fourplex and so on and so forth. So yeah, no, I mean, you know, I, I've definitely been there putting this wet equity. Like, did you contract out any of this? We did a little bit. We had the contractor do the roof. Um, we did a lot of the interior stuff ourselves. We did, we painted it, did the flooring ourselves. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, we painted exterior, interior, and yeah, most of it, I would say, you know, the majority of it we did ourselves, yeah. Would you say you're a handy person? No, <laughs> no. As a matter of fact, my, my partner uh, is, and he really enjoys that sort of thing, and yeah. I don't. And so I would show up in my BMW, you know, with, with my $200 hiking boots on, <laughs> and uh, I can remember going home thinking, like, I have paint all over me. I'm sitting in this car. I was like, I, I'm not built to be a hands-on guy. I mean, parts of it were sort of fun, yeah. uh, but I, I 
knew early on that um, it was not going to be the kind of owner that I wanted to be. I want to buy buildings and uh, and throw the keys to a property manager and have have you know the people who know what they're doing take care of the physical asset. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll say that obviously getting that experience lets you know when you go get a quote, like you're like that's not that hard. It shouldn't cost that much. You yeah, know? gives you a new appreciation for what they do. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, appreciation yeah. and like also obviously when people are trying to gouge you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got your eyes open, and contractors often will when they they can sense when you have you have no clue what's going on. They'll they'll definitely try to come after you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, okay. Well. You know, you jump straight into obviously apartment buildings. Seems like commercial. That's a whole different world. Do you want to kind of talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I guess you know the the backstory there. I I ended up um, I ended up owning the brokerage. So I bought the brokerage, and then later I bought a management company. So today, just to give a little bit of color to to my background, is I'm a broker and a property manager, um, SMI uh, real estate and property management. So we manage. Uh, about 4,000 residential units. We're currently in the process of acquiring another company here in Portland uh, that's about the same size as us or just a little bit smaller. So Mm. we're one of the larger management companies in the area. That's sort of the backbone and foundation to everything we do. Um, Our brokerage is made up of 50 brokers. We do residential and commercial. I just happen to personally broker in apartments and I primarily probably 95% of my portfolio is multifamily. So I consider myself to be uh, a multifamily guy and you and your management side does mostly multifamily too or do you do single family we do a little bit of single family but mostly Mostly multifamily and we do some commercial buildings as well but we're known for you know community type properties okay yep so i'm so i'm definitely an apartment guy i like plex we still to this day will buy uh, a rental house if the right deal comes up there's no deal really too small um and so yeah i think um, what got me interested in doing bigger deals just as we went is, um, you know, the Plex market is um, very, in, in pricing anyway, it's very volatile. Uh, you know, the, the, I guess the demographic that buys a one to four unit qualifies for residential financing, which you guys are, you know, super familiar with. And so when the market shifts and there's plenty of homes for people to buy, um, they're not really home buyers are not really in the market to buy a one to four unit. And so they are, they'll buy one unit, but they're not out buying investment properties. And, um, so then you've got just investors and investors underwrite for cash flow and you know, the type of returns that they're looking for. And so they'll look at a deal much differently than a home home buyer were will. And, you know, Jordan hands somebody a, a pre-approval letter and says, you can spend $700,000 if you buy, you know, a triplex and it's got X amount of additional income coming in and that they take that letter, a home buyer will, and they'll just go buy the first triplex they can find for 700 grand. Right. They're not they're not necessarily underwriting it is that the right, you know, triplex. And so um, what we found is that the the plex market will go from kind of an, an extreme like the the house housing market and the multifamily market stays fairly steady but mm. the plex market will go up and down. And so this creates an opportunity uh, especially for our listeners um, to take a look at that right now, I think that maybe because there's not a lot of homes on the market, that maybe plexes are still selling at the top end because, uh, you know, it's what people can qualify to get into. But as soon as those folks leave that market and it goes, it shifts back over to the investor buyer, um, those will drop again. So if you can catch some of those plexes on the lower end, mm. 
These are ones that when the market shifts, we call it trading stock. And you can go, you can go buy, I mean, that's why I think it's still fun to go buy any, you know, one to four unit that you think is a really great deal because you can catch those on an upswing and you can roll that equity now into a larger apartment complex. So, yeah. And what do you do for your underwriting? Do you have like a very complex and specific way of doing it or is it more you underwrite for like XYZ reason or... So I have in, I don't own a single piece of real estate without partners. My portfolio is about a thousand units. I own about 35% of that. Um, I buy mainly in about four or five different partnerships. Uh, you guys interviewed my partner, Trevor Howard, I mm-hmm. think a few episodes ago, or mm-hmm. maybe uh, just one or two episodes ago. And so most, I, I bring my skill set to the table. And then most of the time I bring in partners that, that have a skill set. And I typically am not the partner that goes out and arranges financing. And I'm also not a spreadsheet guy. Mm. I know how to work a spreadsheet, right, right. but I'm, I'm the back of the napkin guy. So, the, yeah. you know, my... Somebody will find Great. a deal. That's what we love to hear. Yeah, anyway. yeah. It's easy, I, easier, easy to describe in words. I, yeah. You know, I have I have another mentor I should talk about uh, who owns about two thousand doors, and he and I are partners now today, and he's my number one client. And um, you know, it's kind of funny. We when we buy deals, we don't underwrite them at all, mm. um, but we buy in a very in a very particular way. We like leverage, and so we're always looking for creative structures to get our name on assets without using down payment or using very little down payment. Okay. And, and so when we can get our name onto a deal, we'll study the numbers very much back of the napkin and, and just, you know, get an idea of how we think it might pencil. We're trying to find a deal that won't bleed too much. Um, but we sort of have a saying, and this is something that he taught me. He's like, you know, you know, you hear about paralysis by analysis and these things. Yeah. Um, I think you can get hung up in, in spreadsheets a little bit too much. And he, you know, he, he'll he'll laugh and say, "Well, why would we underwrite it? We'll just end up talking ourselves out of the deal." <laughs> you know. Yeah, and totally. So, so the reality is, is almost all deals will work. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think every deal ultimately will work. It's just a matter of time. And so you have to be able, uh, you have to be able to hang on for that ride. It's almost like a bad haircut, right? It's like, you know, in a week, it's not a bad haircut anymore, right? right? And so you can pay too much for a deal. You can buy the wrong deal. Um, and generally, as long as you can hang on, eventually it's mm-hmm. a deal. Now, you know, on your first deal, I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing that. And, and um, you know, we've talked about that as well, that you kind of have to have a base before you can really become a cowboy and go out there and just start buying everything and right. not paying attention. Um, you really should pay attention. I think it's it's wise to underwrite. And the other thing is when you first get started, um, you want to know the numbers. You want to know what makes a deal. And so underwriting is super important to to the extent that you need to figure out what a deal is for you. Everybody has a, a different uh, appetite for risk. Everybody's looking for something different. Some people want leverage. Some people are looking at appreciation. Some are looking at cash flow. And you have to figure out what kind of investor you are. I always say that you know, humans are all very unique and investors are all humans, right? And so Deals are all unique. Buildings are all unique. Deal structures are all unique. You know, financing is all unique. So this puzzle that we piece together is not a a one size fits all. It's very different for for everybody. And so you have to decide what a deal is for you. And underwriting deals, I'm not I'm not 
dissuading everybody to spend time studying the numbers because I think it's a very important exercise to do. I think at some point you have to just do a deal. And Napoleon Hill, if you've read Think and Grow Rich, one of his his uh, concepts or one of the things he says that I like so much is that action is the highest form of intelligence. Mm. So you don't want to get hung up. Being really good at spreadsheets is not going to make you rich. Um, it might tell you who you are, and it might tell you how you want to invest. But once you've done some deals, for me, real estate has become more of an art than a science. Interesting. Yeah. So I don't get hung up as much on some of the, the nuances of, of what might make somebody steer clear of a deal. I know what a deal is for me, and I don't have to go study the numbers over and over and over again. Like, tre- you know, Trevor brings a deal, and I look at it, and I can tell him in 30 seconds what I, what I think makes it a deal and how much it should be worth. And he'll say, well, let me dig in, and he'll go spend a half hour on a spreadsheet, and he'll come back, and he'll, you know, he's like, you're within 50 bucks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so you get you don't get that. Um, I don't think you get that instinctually. I think you do get that by learning how to underwrite. Right. And then over time, we sort of downplay the importance of underwriting, but that might be because we have more of a sense of what, what a deal is for building us. Yeah, a, exactly. You know. I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, you're underwriting for today. You never know what's going to happen tomorrow, next well, week, the economy, <sighs> how things change. That's one of the things I like least about underwriting is you see these projections of three years, four years, and five years out. And then you'll see, okay, well, we've modeled this to have 3% rent growth. And we've modeled to have all these things. And you look at all the variables that are baked into that. And you're thinking like, well, this thing says in five years, I'm going to be rich. Well, you know, you can get in a lot of trouble trying, trying to have a crystal ball and thinking that your spreadsheet's telling you, like, it'll give you an idea of where things might go and you can stress test it and go, well, if things went really well, it could be really good. If things went really bad, it could be here. We can decide in that spectrum. (laughs) The Monte Carlo effect. (laughs) Yeah. A thousand different variables. There are so many variables. You really, you really can't tell. And, and for me, I've done deals I should have never done. I've gotten it myself into major problems that I've had to get myself out of. And I, I sort of decided, like, you know, if you were to ask me what's my style and what are the kind of buildings that I like to buy, I like to do all the deals. I like to do all the deals that I possibly can. And part of that is I'm just very curious at, to mm-hmm. know, you know, what each, you know, you, you, especially when you're brokering, you see so many different styles of, of investing. Speaking of Napoleon Hill, you know, he, he studied hundreds or thousands of people who were rich and tried to find some common thread. I thought I was going to be really smart. And when I became a broker, I was going to study these these rich investors, and I was going to figure out like there's got to be one thing that they all do, right? And it, you know, I you know when you look at rich people who own real estate, they're all different, and they all think they're right and the other person's wrong. It's like you get people that pay all cash, you get people that are right. 100% leverage, you get people that want value leverage. add, you got people that only want brand new product, you got people that want smallplex, and you have people that only want 100 plus unit complexes. Like you just have this wide array of, of different styles. And so it was really hard for me to find a common thread. I think the only common thread might be uh, real estate itself. You know, they're, they're all very successful and they all own real estate. and They do it their own way. Another thing I noticed about wealthy people is they don't like to sit on cash. And we'd probably have to have an entire different podcast uh, to discuss my feelings about the U.S. dollar and the way we print money and, and, and why I think we should hold hard assets and, and not necessarily uh, just stockpile cash. Um, but I can tell you that wealthy people 
um, they there's an urgency when they sit on too much cash to put it into assets. Mm. Um, that when I first saw it, I was I was bewildered because I was like, man, if I was sitting on that much cash, I'd be at the beach right now, <laughs> not worried about what am I going to do to get this into an asset, right, you right. know. Um, but the reality is, is they understand that their cash is is on fire and that it's losing its purchasing power every second of every day. And, um, and they need to get that in, into an asset. And, you know, you can put that into a lot of different things. You can do stock market or yep. bonds or yep. Bitcoin or whatever you're into. Um, for real estate investors, I think we've all done the exercise, and at least for us anyway, and, and for me, I feel like real estate is um, the greatest wealth creation tool in the history of man. And I think that I would much rather own buildings than stockpile cash. And uh, when you look at commercial real estate, or any you know cash producing real estate uh, as as a currency, um, I think that it really shifts your mind as to what kind of an investor you become. We buy we buy real estate. I say with urgency, yeah. um, because it's not just for fun. It's it's a necessity. We have to own real estate. We have to own buildings because if I don't have buildings, I don't really have wealth. I have this. Uh, you know, I'd love to have a ton of cash, but the reality is um, the way that they can manipulate that and, and generate so much. I mean, I think almost 40 percent of all U.S. dollars printed in all time have been printed since COVID. Oh, yeah. yeah, I've heard of that. And and so, you know, people go, oh, well, your fourplex, Stephen, went up. You know, you bought it for a million. It's worth a million five. You made you know, it went up in value five hundred thousand. The reality is, is. It might have gone up a little bit, but really your dollar went down in value. That's that's what happened. Your the dollar versus real estate that that ratio changed, and so you can buy less real estate with your dollar now. That's yeah. why your building goes up in, in in value because the 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 purchasing power of your dollar goes down. And so when you look at it from that angle, it becomes less about oh this is my hobby and oh I've got a little extra money I want to throw over here and wouldn't it be fun to have some passive income? And I really look at this like it's a it's a necessity. Everybody needs to own real estate. You may not want to own a thousand doors. You may you know, but you need to own uh, you need to own real estate like it's it's super important i think for everybody even if you're a, a stock market kind of you, person you consider it a part of diversifying your portfolio basically your I, retirement I don't, portfolio i don't diversify at all i do one thing <laughs> I, buy, I buy real estate i don't believe in diversity well well yeah i mean you consider it part of your retirement portfolio in in the, in the sense that you're you would you would advise someone to own real estate your your point being is that it it helps with your long term I, I think that we're moving into a world where um, we're not going to have the, the lower, middle, upper class. I don't think we really have it today. Uh, I think that we're moving into a, a class system that really is divided by do you own real estate or do you not own real estate? I think there's going to be people that own or, or assets. I think there'll be people that own assets and people that don't own assets. And if you don't own assets, you're just not you're not building generational wealth. You're not building any sort of financial freedom or security for you and your family. Um, it's super, super important to have these. Um, and it's, you know, there is risk. There's always going to be risk. But to me, it's much more risky to not 
own real estate than it is to own real estate. Even if you do it, even if you did your first deal and it's the wrong deal, you're going to learn from that. And, and I would advise to go out and just keep doing it until you put your name on, on some buildings and, um, you know, start small and, you know, learn, learn about yourself and, and figure out what it is, you know, if, if you enjoy it, great. But even if you don't, um, find a way in or, or, or if you just have some money, and you don't want to think that hard, find somebody that'll go invest it for you or par- partner with you or something. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask about like, obviously getting into a building, you have your back of the napkin kind of calculations. I mean, I have mine too, but it's in the residential world. Okay. Obviously, you know, like a primary loan or investor loan. This is my mortgage. This is my cash flow. Easy peasy making money. This is my cash and cash return, you know, bam. But you know, in your world, you're doing a lot of creative financing, seller finance, et cetera. How do you do, like, can you kind of give us the process of what that back of the napkin looks like? Yeah, for are you happy if you're just breaking even? Sure. Or if you're bleeding yeah. a little bit, as long as you're not coming in with a lot of cash? So there, there's only four economic benefits to owning real estate, and that's cash flow, principal buy-down, which is basically cash flow, it's just paying off your yep. loans, yep. and then appreciation, which we hope our buildings go up in value, and depreciation, which is amazing. I love depreciation because that's like phantom income. That's where you know the government says we get to write off a loss when we didn't really have one. Right. Um, and so when I look at a deal, um, going back to that art more than science, I teach my brokers uh, and, and my clients to look at a deal from every angle and not to get hung up on price. Uh, price is just one ingredient to bake that cake. There are so many other things that you can do to make a deal. And so when everybody's running after the, the cheapest deal and you know something comes out on the market, it's 50 grand lower than it should be and you got 20 offers coming in and everybody's going crazy. Um, I'm not looking for that deal. I mean, if we can find that deal and we can do the deal, great. I'm, I'm totally fine with that. Um, but what I'm more looking for is how do we get our name onto these assets in using as little money out of my pocket as possible? Mm. I can't go out. When I, when I started my portfolio eight years ago, I had just started my brokerage career. I wasn't independently wealthy. I had no money. I was on unemployment when I became a real estate broker. I had nothing. Okay. And so I had to buy my portfolio with my mouth. I couldn't buy it with my wallet. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, 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 this sounds kind of mean, but I tell my brokers to use their whole brain. Like, let's really think about what all of the different ways are that we can get into a deal. So I'm not, um, I'm not super price sensitive and I'm not super rate sensitive either. Mm-hmm. I'm not too, I'm not very hung up on those things. Right. Um, what I'm looking for is a, is a, your price, my terms kind of a deal. I'm willing to pay you top dollar for your property. If you're willing to, if you're willing to help me find a way to get into this. Now, if you're running around, you're saying, I want to do my first deal. This is the thing I hear from people all the time. Well, you got to have money to make money. I think that's a myth. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't, I mean, Sure. If you if, if you have some money, that might make this a little bit easier. But the reality is, is, is you have to have an education. You have to have knowledge. You have to have a wisdom. You have to go learn how to put deals together. And you have to learn what a deal is. If you can do that, you don't need any money. Because first off, somebody there's so much money in the world. There is so much money. If you come from a scarcity mindset and you think that there's no money, you need that's, there's the first place to start is go really look and see how much money is is floating around this planet there is there there is nearly an unlimited supply of money okay and that money is all looking for the same thing it all wants yield 
So you don't have to go find, it's very hard to find, to go make the money. You know, you can go work your job or get the best job on the planet and you're going to pay taxes and you're going to, you know, you're going to be working all the time and you're going to have a certain amount of income that comes from that. And then what's left over, even if you go out and make a million dollars a year, what do you have left over to invest? What are you going to buy? Uh, you maybe save up a down payment for a duplex or something like that. So um, I think that you have to look at creative structures and you have to look for um, you have to look for other ways to do a deal other than just traditional financing. And so. Um, one of the ways that we do that is when we are looking at a deal, we're always trying to keep the seller in the deal in, in some way. There's, mm -hmm. there's nobody in your deal that's more motivated to help you than the person selling it right. to you. And so oftentimes you'll go to somebody and you'll say, Hey, you know, you want to buy, uh, you want to buy this half million dollar building and what what would be ideal for you well you know the building might only be worth 450 but i would pay you 500 um if you carried the note for me with 100 percent financing and i'll pay the brokers and i'll pay closing costs and you just we'll just do a note and i'll put you in first position well you know oftentimes they have a loan on it already well what are we going to do are we going to wrap that debt um so now now you start talking about getting creative um but you know, we've we've gone, you know, to the extent of developing a few different models to, or, you know, strategies to where we'll come in and keep the seller in the deal. We say, well, would you carry a large, maybe 5% down or 10% down? And that's very common. You hear people asking for those deals all day long. Mm -hmm. But what if we flip that script and we say, well, what if we could get you 70% of the money now? Would you carry 30% for us? Mm -hmm. There's a couple of different ways that, that you can go about doing that. Um, you know, you might be able to put them in a second position, depending on your, your lender in first, if they'll allow it. Mm -hmm. Usually, I think on one to four units, that's probably easier, actually, mm -hmm. than when you get into commercial money. Uh, on a commercial loan, usually you can't put, uh, you know, junior debt on there. And so, um, how, how, you know, your price, okay, I'll give you the 500 grand, but I don't want to use a down payment. So I'm just going to ask the seller, will you loan me the down payment money? Right. That's simple. Now, the question becomes, how do we give them security? What are the terms of that? The, what, what I'm getting at is, you know, if I'm going to go buy that building, instead of having to try to figure out a way to save $150,000 to go buy that, how do I find that money elsewhere? It might, it might just be to the extent that I really like this deal. And I go to Steven and Steven has 150 grand. I go, hey, I found a deal. I want, I need some money to do the deal. Let's yeah, be partners and do the deal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there's, there's, uh, an infinite amount of ways to solve the problem. It's, it's only bound by your imagination. And I think that, um, you know, we're always looking to leverage. Uh, let me t talk just briefly about leverage and one of the reasons why we like leverage so much. So let, let's use easy math. If we go out and we buy a million dollar building, mm -hmm. We, we pay cash. Yep. We want to double our money. Yep. We got to figure out a way to make this thing worth $2 million. Right. Now, we could roll the dice and just hope, or we could be really good operators and we can go in and we can double the rent roll and you know keep our expenses the same. Yep. And now we got a building that's worth twice as much. We just doubled our money. If I go out and do a normal bank loan and I put 30, today is probably more like 40% down. Yep. But if let's just say I put $300,000 down. And it's my own money, three hundred thousand. I borrow seven hundred thousand from the bank. Well, now I only have to make that building worth one point three, and I've just yeah. doubled my money. Yep. Now let's go to a seller carry with ten percent down. I put a hundred thousand down. Now I only have to make it worth one point one. Well, what happens if I get a hundred percent financing 
and I use somebody else's money to buy the million dollar building, the day that it goes up one dollar in right. value, I've just made an infinite return. Yep. It'll break your spreadsheet. Right. You won't even know what to do. It'll yep. just give you some, you know, wingdings <laughs> or whatever you call it. Right. So, uh, so the leverage when when you really look at um, you know utilizing other people's money to get your name on assets mm-hmm. for us, the question Stephen asked earlier is what do we look at? We look at how do we get our name on as much real estate as we possibly can with as little money out of our pocket as we possibly can. And if it, it's not necessarily a no money game, we call it a no money down game, but you're still going to have um, bleed. You're still going to have, oh, it needs a roof. Guess what? You get to write a check for the roof. Right. You know, uh, two people just moved out and we have turnover. Well, guess what? You're going to pay for that turnover and, you know, you're, you, have, you have cash flow, but it's negative cash flow. So now you have these buildings and this is, this is what most people, I would say, especially early investors, don't really have the guts for, the heart for, is to own buildings they got to write checks for. Just like my story, when I had to write a $7,500 check, I thought, maybe this isn't for me. And so that's how most people feel. Once you get do a round trip on an investment and you see, oh, that $7,500 ended up coming back to me in, in, you know, multiples and it bought me an 11 plex and so on. Then you can kind of, you know, you're, you, you can sort of see the whole picture rather than just, oh my gosh, I have these buildings that I have to, I have to write checks to all the time. So, you know, I mean, everybody's going to have to decide for themselves, uh, a high leverage deal. You're at very much risk of, of, of writing checks. But if I didn't have to write the $300,000 check to buy it, Anything less than I that that I have to put into it under three hundred thousand, I'm still less money out of my pocket, right? And there's a tax play here. If I take and park three hundred thousand dollars into that building, I've got to go out and make five hundred thousand dollars first, and then I have to pay taxes. And now I have this post-tax money that I'm going to go park in this asset yep. that's very illiquid. That's going to be hard for me to get my three hundred grand back unless I go sell it or refinance it. I'm right. just parking money, right? If I can buy that money with somebody, if I can buy that building with somebody else's money, and then I have to put a hundred thousand dollar roof on it. I'm going to write off that $100,000 to expense. I'm saving money on taxes by putting the money into the building afterwards instead of parking post-tax dollars. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I I love the idea of, uh, of the tax savings. Now, you have to have income. And so, you know, for me, you know, there are different models. There are uh, f- investors who want cash flow and there's investors who want appreciation. And I, and I think probably a lot of your listeners are probably on the West coast. Yep. And so we live in an appreciation market. Right. If you're out hunting for cash flow, you might have to go inland. <laughs> yeah. The middle States is where, is where the cash flow is. Look at mobile home parks, look at, um, you know, some of the, some of the Midwestern type States where you can still buy a house for 30 grand or whatever, right? Like there are places that you can make cash flow. This market is a very hard cash flow market. I mean, eventually a building will cash flow, but it takes a little while right. to get there. If you're banking on living on the cash flow of your buildings, you might be disappointed being an, an Oregon or Washington investor. Yeah. It might take you a, a while to get to the point where you have that that sort of an income coming in. So for me, 
I'm 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 looking. I play the appreciation game, obviously, and I'll tell you one of the reasons why is when I first got started, I was like everybody else, and I thought, wow, if I could buy these buildings and I could just have five thousand dollars a month in cash flow, like think of the pressure that that's going to take off of me to go make this income. Now I could feel like I can kind of do. I could have that freedom I'm looking for. I can go out and I can broker deals when I want to. I can you know I can go on vacation when I want to do whatever I want. You know, very. In my, in my opinion, for me, that was very small thinking. Yeah. I didn't realize it was small thinking at the time until I got to the point where I was making 5000 in passive income. And then somebody showed me how to build a balance sheet and they showed me how to build a financial statement. I looked at my personal financial statement and I said, well, I'm a millionaire. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a multimillionaire. Like, you know, I, I was looking over here like, oh, I need five grand. And over here now there's millions of dollars. Oh, oh my God. Equity, yeah. I thought, what what a dummy I am. Like I was I was over here playing the small game right. when there's the when there's all this money to be made. And that's probably where my brain switched and I said, Okay, I'm gonna find I don't I you know, I'm gonna find a way to make my cash flow. Uh, it's nice to own some buildings, obviously, that cash flow and you start to build a base and you get to right. a certain point. It's like, OK, well, how much ca- how much cash do you really need every single month? But for me, owning businesses, um, especially when they're doing well, it's like that's my I call it now money and tomorrow money. Mm-hmm. And so the businesses provide me enough now money to where I'm not really relying on passive income. Most of the, the money that comes in from my buildings, I can just put right back into the buildings or use it to go buy more buildings. That's the cool thing about it. Warren Buffett talks about compounding interest. You know, Most people have some understanding of this because they've gotten into credit card debt. And you just see that like, like this snowball sort of just gets out of control in the wrong direction. Yeah. You can snowball that in the right direction by owning assets because these assets eventually will start buying you more assets. And now you're not out trying to figure out how do I make enough money to go put a down payment? Well, now you got all this equity. You just bought a fourplex and a couple years later, you're trading that into an eightplex because of the equity in the building. You didn't have to go out and you know bust your hump every day to make a big down payment to go buy the next one. So um, so now money and tomorrow money is the way I look at it. That's kind of a kindergarten on a kindergarten level. But I, I feel like to be, um, you know, to, to really be wealthy and, and to build what I'm trying to build, I have to be a big thinker and to be hung up on cash flow to me um, on some level is small thinking. Mm. And so you do you do want to have cash flow. One of the one of my favorite um, portfolios I've ever looked at, there's the, there's this investor. He owns a ton of stuff. Um, and it's like 75% of his buildings, I think, are on the coastlines and they're all multifamily. And then 25% of his portfolio is a uh, mobile home park in mm-hmm. the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. And the mobile home parks provide a platform for him. That's what gives him. That's like me having businesses. He has this cash flow that comes in that he knows is just every month that check is going to show up, right? right? And then he can go out and on that foundation, he can put his name on assets in markets where they're going, they're appreciating a lot of value. You don't need all of that cash flow once you grow to a certain point. I think, you know, when you're first starting out, the only thing you can really think of is, I need more money. Right. But then it doesn't take very long until you're like, well, how much money do you really need? I mean, you can go try to spend as much as you can possibly dream of, and you'll realize you probably don't need as much cash as you thought you did. 
once you have a nice lifestyle going, you got a good foundation. You know, it took me about three years to probably build up a, a good amount of cash flow and equity to where I, then I felt like I was going out and I was able to do deals where I wasn't hung up on. Oh my gosh, if I don't do this, I'm not going to be able to. I'm not going to be able to survive and build what I'm trying to build. Yeah, I mean, and that example you gave of the guy who has the stuff on the West Coast that appreciates and the stuff in the in the Midwest, the the mobile home parks. I mean, that's kind of in a sense of a, a sort of diversification, but in real estate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he is uh, he's diversifying between uh, a cash flow model and and an appreciation model. I think that one of the one of the hangups for a lot of folks and a lot of a lot of my clients who are getting into investing um, is the fact that in every book you read and every everything you listen to, everyone will tell you that if you don't buy for cash flow, you're an idiot, right? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the premise is, is every deal should be underwritten to cash flow. And if you don't understand, well, today it doesn't cash flow, but the rents, uh, I, you know, b- before the show, Stephen was talking about rents. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about yeah, the four you books. About the you, you said your rents were uh, like $1,000 or something. Yeah, exactly. and, and now what are they today? 2000 Okay, two thousand. So, for every hundred dollars in net income you get per month, so let's say you raise the rent on one tenant one hundred dollars, yeah, and your expenses are flat; they don't change. On a six cap, you just made twenty thousand dollars in appreciation. Yeah. Once you start to understand the way capitalization rates work in commercial real estate, you know, on a five cap, it's twenty five thousand. So a year ago, things were selling at a five cap. Now they're a little bit higher, still. So multiply that. You did that on one unit from 1,000 to 2,000. Your expenses, four units, okay. So let's just talk about one unit for a second. Your expenses probably went up a little bit, but you take that 20,000 and you multiply it times 10, you just made 200,000. Now you multiply that times four, you made 800,000. Now that's not the reality because your expenses have gone up, insurance has gone up, utilities have gone up. So you still probably made 400,000, 500,000 in appreciation in how long? Two years? Three years? Three years. So you think about that for a second. Like how hard do you have to work to make $500,000 of tax sheltered income? I, mean, I worked a little hard. <laughs> no, <laughs> I got he means if you're hard. working like your engineering <laughs> oh, job. My, oh, yeah. yeah. That's, that's yeah you're compared to that. Yeah. Oh, man. Like full time, 40 hours a week, multiple, multiple years. Yes. That's, that's a long. Yeah. It's, a, it's a, just a lot of a lot of work. And so, you know, that, this is why you want to hold the asset. Now, maybe maybe the values have dropped a little bit. Cap rates have gone up or whatever the case may be. But when you look at how you th- this is why a lot of people say, well, buy for cash flow, don't buy for appreciation, because if you're buying for appreciation, you're gambling. You're just rolling the dice. But the truth is, is if you become a really good operator, you can buy that building at $1,000 rent and know, even if they weren't 2000 back then, at least you know that you can raise the rent to a certain level. You knew the day you bought it that it rents should have been more than $1,000. Oh, probably. yeah, that's 100%, 100% what, the reason what, I bought it. What were the rents, what were the rents back then? 1100 and then I fixed it up and then there were 2000. So, but what was market rent at the time that you bought it? Cuz you knew if oh, 1100 was not enough. I was enough. thinking it would probably go for about 1800. Okay. So it's gone up a couple hundred more than that. But exactly. you knew going in that they shouldn't be 1100, they should be 1800. So you're not 
gambling. No. You knew that if you reposition the asset and you change the tenant base or you you know you clean the units up or do whatever you have and to do. And that wasn't a that wasn't a spreadsheet calculation. That was a, I can afford this and I think this is going to go up, right? I shot you know? from the hip. Shot <laughs> from the hip. And, and it worked. It yeah. did work. Yeah, the the smartest people I know tell me that that's the way you make that's the way you really get rich in real estate is is by learning how to do this as an art form. And uh, and you know, again, like you want to you want to study that deal, you know, in your next deal, if you were to sell that fourplex now, and let's say we go put you into a tenplex, you know, you're going to want to study a deal and make sure, number one, that you like the tenplex better than the fourplex. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I would challenge you to find a way to go buy the tenplex without selling the fourplex. The only reason to sell it is if you have to. Oh, no, I love that asset. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get that one up. <laughs> now, if it was bleeding, would you still love it? <laughs> no, that's a tough part. No. <laughs> so you love the cash flow. <laughs> uh, actually, I don't really touch the cash I like the appreciation. I'm going to appreciate You like the appreciation? Well. Yeah. Okay. And I always tell people about, like, the Midwest. It's like, okay, like, and, you know, my, my clients are residential. They want to buy a small, like, a home. Yep. Like, okay, you can make that $200 a month. Oh, you know, the sewer pipe bursts. Like, what are you going to do now? Now you're just paying money into it. Where's that cash flow? And that property doesn't go up in value. So have fun in the Midwest. Right. Yeah. Maybe better at scale. Some of those. So like I lived in Iowa for four years and some of the places in the like in 10 years, you know, they're they're the same price. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. They don't go up. I mean, there's something kind of cool about that. But the rents, you know, the rents have gone up a little bit. And rents, I, rents I, couldn't go up, yeah. I, I have, sure. um, I have. as a matter of fact, my, my partner I talked about earlier who brought me into the business, uh, he's a cash flow guy. And he ended up selling a lot of his stuff here in Oregon and going to the Midwest and buying uh, buying houses. And, you know, there's, it, there is a model there. And, sure, you know, you yeah. go buy a house for 20000 30000 bucks, you spend five grand, clean it up, rent it out for seven or $800, especially when, if you're a cash buyer. I mean, you know, I don't know if you're going to park your cash in a building in Oregon and you're going to pay all cash, you probably aren't going to get the returns you're looking for. Right. So, you know, uh, from a from a leverage standpoint, sure, this I I think maybe leverage and appreciation go hand in hand. Whereas if you're if you're a super conservative, I don't ever want to lose no matter what kind of buyer and I'm just going to go buy. um, Sure. Take your if you have if you have one hundred fifty thousand, don't go buy the fourplex. Go Buy three houses in, you know, I don't know what state you can buy them in, but Kentucky sure. yeah, or anywhere. I don't know. Somewhere in the Midwest, yeah. yeah. So well, what, what would you say to somebody that was, like, just getting started um, and that's kind of a little bit nervous about investing? You know, this is kind of way over their head in terms of, like, scale. And they're just kind of thinking about how to get their toes wet. Mm-hmm. They, they work another job full time, and they, they don't have as much – capacity, they're kind of more interested in looking at it like they would the stock market. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is something that would be hard to dip your toe into. I think you, you have to sort of immerse yourself in it. Mm. Um, I think, you know, you, you probably need partners. Um, it's, it's not, um, I mean, I don't know, every, everybody's different, has a different level of, of intelligence and a different level of creativity. And like I said before, appetite for risk. And so, um, you know, if, if you're looking at just trying to get in, I would highly suggest finding somebody who's already doing it. Mm. 
and try to go into a deal with somebody just else. Bring some cash with somebody that has knowledge and just go 50-50 with them. I think so. I mean, partners are my favorite part of doing real estate deals. They're also probably um, can be one of the worst parts of doing real estate deals. <laughs> Partner, it's just like picking a wife, right? I mean, it, like uh, the right wife will, will make you happy and it'll be a wonderful life. And the wrong wife will just um, make things awful. So uh, you have to pick your partner super wisely. And I think it's important to make sure your goals are aligned, uh, to make sure that, um, you know, each one of you have maybe a different skill set and bring mm. something different to the table. I would advise that everybody that, that gets into a partnership can write a check if things go wrong, because mm. that's kind of where partnerships go sideways is right. when something happens and, and somebody can't help pay for it. Um, but I love the fact if we, if, you know, if we make a million dollars, I love the fact that I get to go celebrate with my partners and share that pie with them. And if we lose a million dollars, I love the fact that I don't have to write the whole check. <laughs> I, I love it. Um, so I, I, I have really been blessed with good partners. I've had a few bad ones that really cost me a lot. Um, but I learned a lot from having, having the wrong partners, and I learned what I needed to find in, in my partnerships. But I've been really lucky having multiple uh, really good partners, and they do some things that I don't do. I'm, I'm obviously not an in-the-weeds kind of a guy. I'm not a detail guy. And so, you know, I'm responsible for trying to funnel deals in, thinking of uh, different creative strategies to get our name on the deal, providing a balance sheet to help us get the financing and do that. And that's the role that I play. We own properties that I've never even been to before. So I'm not in the weeds at all. Mm. I need partners that are a little bit in the weeds. Because right, right. otherwise, as a matter of fact, my, my one partner who owns 2,000 Doors, um, need, we're both big picture guys. Right. And so... That's a bad partnership on one level <laughs> because neither one of us are paying attention to some of the right. things that need to be paid attention to. Luckily, right. we have really good property managers and we have good people on our team that are paying attention to some of those things. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we'll, we'll buy a building and, you know, I can remember we bought uh, about half of a city block in Seaside a couple of years ago and neither one of us even really liked the deal. We were actually kind of trying to get out of the deal <laughs> and then we closed the deal and like the thing makes us more cash flow than any any other building that we own. And we're like, wow, we love that deal. We, we really love that building, but we had never even sat down to study it close enough to know where it was. And then there's other buildings where we think, man, this is, this is the one we really, you know, we really love this one. And, uh, and then we realize once we begin like, oh my gosh, this thing's got some problems and we're going to have a lot of work to do here and a lot of money to spend. Mm. And so I think the more, I, I really think that, um, you have to make mistakes. I mean, I, I don't know how else you learn. I, I, um, we do an investor meetup down in Salem once a month, and uh, I just I built a 26-unit project with some partners. I didn't build it. I just They built it, and I just came into the deal with them. And uh, he spoke, uh, Mark Gallegos, really talented guy. And I asked him while he was up there speaking, and I said, you know, have you ever lost money on a deal? And he said, no, I've, you know, I've had a lot smaller margins on some deals than others, but I've never lost. And, and my response to him was that you have lost a lot because you've missed out on a ton of deals. Mm. And so from my angle, the way I see that is mm. you don't want to be so conservative to play a never lose 
uh, game because you're going to lose. You're right. going to miss out on opportunity. Totally. You're on, on, you know, he talked about underwriting a couple hundred deals and, and I'm not dogging him at all. Cause he's a brilliant guy and he's done very well for himself. But if he had a little bit more of an appetite for risk and he was willing to lose every once in a while, I think that he would be two or three times as far as, as he is today. Now, you know, if you're too loosey goosey, you might go out and just do the wrong two or three deals right out of the gate. And then you're just toast and then you're like, well, really, Real estate yeah. didn't then work you're for me. Choose something else. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of that and pitfalls, what are what are some things that you've run into that taught you like valuable lessons that you could you know share with our audience about about partners or just about buildings? And partner about- real estate, just yeah. I mean, it seems like you've had so much experience, and it's we we love hearing about mistakes so that because because we love learning from other people's sure. mistakes. I'll tell you I'll, I'll tell you about my biggest mistake I ever made. I had a friend from high school who um, he was kind of the class clown, funny guy. And we didn't know, you know what he was going to do in life. But ultimately, he became one of these guys that traveled the world and taught people how to flip houses. Mm. And so I was, you know, multifamily guy out buying some plexes and, and doing kind of the boring, you know, buy this dump and get the cockroaches out and raise the rents. And is, you yeah. know, I mean, it's not that sexy, honestly. Right. Make money it's, over time it's, with it's, hard work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, it's a lot more fun to talk about it than it is to actually do it. Um, but flipping houses is kind of sexy, you know? I mean, yeah. it's like you take this old piece of crap and you turn it into this beautiful thing and they put them on TV and all this stuff. There's, everybody really celebrates this this moment of flipping houses. And so um, at one point I felt like I really needed another stream of revenue and I should get into house flipping. And I thought to myself, well, I don't know how to flip houses. So I went and, and, um, and I asked him if he wanted to be my partner we could flip some houses. This is a guy that, you know, he teaches everybody how to flip houses. Well, he didn't have any money. And so we had to find a money guy. And, uh, so I went to one of my partners, I owned some apartments with at the time. And, uh, and he had flipped hundreds of houses and done them very successfully. And, and he was, you know, out of the California market and he had uh, a lot of money and, uh, we had a good relationship and he says, sure, you guys go buy some houses and I'll fund it. And we'll just, you know, I was like, okay, this all came together. Just easy, too easy. So we went out and, um, and, and my, the, the partner who taught seminars came up with the idea that we were going to do luxury flips. Mm. And so we went out and we bought 10 houses. 10? To start. <laughs> what year was this? I'd never flipped a house before. Uh, 2016. Okay, 2016. And, um, and most of them were in Portland. All single family. Uh, all single family. A yeah. couple of them in Lake O, a couple mm-hmm. in Salem. We didn't even have a crew. We didn't have, have a, a contractor's license or any of this stuff. And so... He was out meeting with retail remodel contractors to do our flips. And, you know, after, after, you know, our hard money is, you know, we we borrowed some money from our partner and then we went out and got some hard money loans. And um, I had about five million dollars in hard money loans. And these guys, we set up a business, but for somehow it all ended up in my name. So I ended up personally guaranteeing five million dollars with a hard money loans to buy. So there's a mistake like. Uh, you know, when you sign your name on a personal guarantee, pay attention to what you're doing. It's mm. not just like everything's going to work out, right? And so um, at that time, I didn't have much uh, money, and I didn't, you know, I was I had fifty thousand dollars a month in debt service on yeah. on those loans, and so I was just out brokering apartment deals and like just closing deals left and right to keep that that business afloat. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, you know the 
you know, there, there, there was one mistake is the partner with no money. Don't partner with people with no money. There's a, a great lesson to learn. Um, I learned that a million dollars is not really that much money because we lost $2.1 million. took us about six months to pull that off. Oof. We'd get about I, – I thought, well, what's the risk? We've got all this rehab money sitting there. We can go do these. Well, the budgets were all wrong. They weren't $150,000 flips. They were $300,000 flips. And they weren't four-month projects. They were, you know – 14-month projects or, or more. Yeah. And so um, I thought, well, what can go wrong? And so we got through about half of them, and we went in, and we spent all this money on demo. And then we spent all this money on rewiring them, and then all the replumbing, and then the HVAC, and then we got to add a master bedroom, and then we got to add this, and we got to do that. And it was very pie-in-the-sky sort of, you know, made-for-TV stuff. These guys on TV are lying to you. They're not, they're not making the money and doing, doing what they say they're doing. It's, it's definitely uh, a show. It's, it's show business. Um, and so the, the reality is, is I'd get a building about halfway there. And, you know, by the time you're halfway done, you've spent like a quarter of a million dollars on interest and demo. And, mm -hmm. you know, you've torn all the, all the drywall out. You're down to the studs. You've got electrical plumbing HVAC in. You've spent a lot of money. Yeah. Well, my partner, the money partner guy, he says, oh, you guys don't know what you're doing. I'm out. I'm not, I'm not part of this anymore. You guys got to figure it out. And he said, I think we should just go sell all these houses. And so we went out. <laughs> what I found is when somebody walks into a house and it's all torn apart, they want to pay you less for the house than what you paid for it. <laughs> here's, the, here's the risk. You just put $250,000 into a house and it looks like a piece of crap. And so people come in and they're like, well, yeah, I mean, you said you did all these things, but we don't know what you did and we don't know if it was the right contractor. And so... Um, you know, and it, it, when you're midway through a project, there is a huge amount of risk to yeah. you and your lender, like between when a project is started and when it's completed, um, boy, if you don't hit that finish line, you don't know your numbers. Here's a place to underwrite. Don't ever do a flip project, uh, unless you really know your numbers. You got to make sure mm -hmm. every line item is dialed to, to a T and you really got to watch that and, and manage it. So I learned from me valuable lesson. I'm not a house flipper. Don't even really like the model. To be honest, I don't consider house flipping to be investing at all. It's more like the car business was when I was in that. Mm -hmm. It's got it's got that uh, hot potato. You gotta get it. You gotta move. It's it. a time. Yeah. It's a time thing, right? So you better have a good contractor con connection. You better do your numbers right. I think and you better be the market doesn't yeah. shift. <laughs> if you're the contractor yourself hmm. and you control the timelines and you do a flip that doesn't require any sort of city involvement. One of the things oh, we learned oh, is yeah, like going in permits. for permits to yeah. try to up the square footage on a building. We thought, oh, you know, they tell you, oh yeah, it's a three or four week process. Almost every single time it was six months. Yeah. You don't have six months, especially when you're on hard money. So when you line up, there's another lesson. When you line up the wrong funding mm -hmm. with the wrong business model, you gotta make sure your loan matches. And so if we were just using my money partners, it was just all his money. We're paying cash. And right. If he's you would have just done like two or three instead exactly. of like ten, maybe the, fir the first two we did, yeah. we paid all cash for. Yeah. And you're not up at night worried about right. it. The other ones where the clock is ticking and you're yeah. paying 12 or 13% interest. And then every six months or three months or whatever it is, they want to charge you three more points to refi. I mean, I think that through that whole thing, we paid almost $2 million in interest. So when I, when I line up the loss and I line up the interest, it's almost the same thing. So our hard money lender made what we lost. Um, and Typically uh, the lender doesn't lose. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of like the. I was like, man, I, maybe I should be a hard money lender instead of <laughs> instead of doing this. Um, so anyway, that that just taught me to stay in my lane. It's not what I do. I didn't. I did. I took on a, at least one of the wrong partners in that situation, mm-hmm. and I went off and I did something that I knew nothing about, and I didn't stay in my lane. Um, but I learned a lot of lessons, and I learned at that time. You know, I really thought a million dollars was a lot of money, and after you lose it. Um, you know, I've, you know, I paid everybody back and everybody got made whole, but, um, I realized, you know, it, it is a lot of money, but it's really not what you think. Like, you know, in my mind, I sort of felt like if I had a million dollars, I'd be set. Like, you know, this is, this is enough to sort of sail off into the sunset. And after going through that process, I thought, oh my gosh, I heard somebody say the other day that millionaire is the new middle class. I mean, um, it sounds like a lot of money, but it's not. Mm. Uh, you need and and really going back to the point before is you want to hold the assets. It's not about buying them to sell them because then you're paying taxes. You get none of the benefit. You don't get the cash flow. Yep. You don't get principal buy down. Yep. Right. You don't get. You might get the appreciation because of the sweat equity that you're putting into it, but you don't get to depreciate it. It doesn't yep. go on your depreciation schedule. Yep. So you're not really an investor. You know, you're just you're just really more. It's a job. Yeah, it's just a job. And if you like it and that's how you make your money and you're good at it, hey more power to you. I was bad at it because I didn't have the time to go focus on it every single day. I might've been able to be good at it if that was what I was doing with my day from the time I woke up till the time I went to bed. But I was out uh, brokering apartment deals so I could keep keep the business going. I didn't foreclose on, you know, $5 million worth of loans. Totally. Great. Well, I mean, if people are looking to get a hold of you or, or, you know, contact you on social media, what is the best way to find you? Um, probably email is good. My email is Gabe at SMIRE.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'd love the opportunity to, if some people have questions about investing in multifamily or commercial, or they're looking for management, we would love the opportunity to talk to them. That's awesome. Great. Thank you so much for the lessons. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Realize Gains podcast. If you have any questions for our co-hosts or guests, don't hesitate to reach out. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com.